This podcast has now been referenced in keynote speeches at Arabia HQ, Architects Journal, BD Online, and GB News. Hello, Jason here. Before I start the podcast, I would just like to share some news. The Brock Architect podcast is now raising money for the Architects Benevolence Society. And I have set a target of £1,500 by December the 15th, 2023. Please consider donating as you never know when you yourself would need help. Links in the show notes. Now back to the podcast. This is season two of The Broke Architect. I have a question for you. Are you an architect and are you f***ing broke? If the answer is yes, it's what I've suspected for many years, as I am indeed an architect myself. This podcast is about debt in the profession of architecture, and I want to hear from you. Are you just surviving month to month with no extra money for savings? Or are you seriously broke and in debt, and stress and worry about your income? Or does your wife, husband, or significant other earn substantially more than you which gives you a great life, given the ability to choose your clients, when you work and who for? Or have you attained financial freedom in architecture? If you're in the first two categories, surviving month to month or facing financial difficulties, how is this affecting your mental health? Are you suffering from depression or even despair? Please share, subscribe, and comment to support the channel. I have with me today Erin Pellegrino, located in New York City, Manhattan. Erin trained to be an architect at Cornell and then Harvard University. She has the education and yes, she has the debt. She runs her own practice matter and teaches professional practice at Cornell. Now, Erin began the company Out of Architecture with Jake Rudin, a fellow Broke Architect guest. And this is a consultancy helping architects see new possibilities. Jake and Erin also have a podcast and they have just finished their second series. And they also have a book called Out of Architecture. You can purchase this on Audible. Firstly, welcome to the second series of the Broke Architect podcast. And I just want to ask, how are you today? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for for having me here. It's a, it's always great to talk about architecture and out of architecture and all of the issues plaguing architects. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Maybe if we can start with you know you just telling me a little bit about your family background and I ask this of every guest: Why did you want to study architecture? Yeah. No. Good. Good question. Um, you know, it's interesting. I didn't know any architects growing up, but I came from a family of tradespeople and and makers. So my grandmother was a, a seamstress and a dressmaker. My father was a cabinet maker. I have uncles in the in the trades, and I just sort of grew up around people who um, who do things for a living. And and I uh, I have my friends recently, or I have a friend recently who sh- who called me a doer. Um, so I've just sort of always grown up around that. I did not, however, grow up around professionals, I think in that sense of, of, you know, a white collar kind of service-based profession. So I didn't know much about architecture going into it. Um, I was really drawn to it simply because I went to a 
a design focused high school. It was a public school, but it was based on, uh, it was called communications high school. And um, it looked at all the ways that we communicate. So I studied uh, history through film. I studied journalism. I studied uh, broadcasting and as well, graphic design. And one day I Googled graphic design and physics because the other class I absolutely loved and, and was able to take twice kind of physics one and physics two in high school, just because I knew I didn't want to go to art school. I didn't want to be an artist, but I really enjoyed you know, this format of, of communication, let's say. And I came up with architecture and I then immediately started thinking about architecture programs. Um, so I started Googling, how could one study architecture? At the time I was the technical stage director for our drama club and I would build all of the sets and um, props. And I just really enjoyed kind of making spaces, not that I knew what I was doing. And got into it in that way. And I took a, a class. I grew up in New Jersey. So I commuted into the city one day a week, my junior year of high school to Pratt. I ended up cashing in a, a bond that someone had bought me when I was a baby to take the class. And I totally fell in love with it. We were designing like a small little residency and we were walking around the city sketching. And um, I was like, this is so cool. I didn't know I could do this um, for a job or, or in college. And uh, the rest is kind of history. I was the first person in my high school to apply to architecture school. I was lucky enough to, to get in. I couldn't afford to go to Pratt. Cornell offered the best financial package, um, which is, I think, typical actually of, of of institutions like that. They have bigger endowments, and so i I went to I went to Cornell. Uh, I was the first person in my family to go to college. I had no idea what I was doing, uh, <laughs> but it was yeah. a, a great experience. Yeah, I could just see the the city of New York as well must be such an inspiration for people, and you know, you you're just surrounded by. Uh, beautiful architecture uh, maybe not so beautiful some 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 of it would say but I, I really really interested on um, why you became an architect and I thought that was fantastic and you you said you studied architecture at Cornell you know that is a prestigious university you know we know that in in the UK we but yet we associate university fees in the US with really high fees yep so firstly you know, why did you choose to go uh, to Cornell? Because I understand you were also accepted at the AA. Is that for your master's? Um, for master's, I, I was yeah. accepted to the AA. I didn't know about the AA at all uh, for undergrad, uh, although it would have been equally inaccessible then as it was when I was <laughs> doing my master's. I, I ended up at Cornell, mainly mainly it was a financial decision. So you have this, this thing, it may be true in, in the UK as well, but it's called total cost of attendance which is understanding the the cost of a school, you know, there's tuition and, and whatnot, but then there's also what does it cost to live in that place and, and whatnot. And Cornell was a need blind school. So they accepted you before they understood what your financial, sorry, financial aid needs would be. Um, and my top choices, I applied to three schools. I tried to, I applied to Drexel University, which is in Philadelphia, I um, applied to Cornell and I applied to Pratt. Pratt was where I had taken that summer college or pre-college program. And I really loved the idea of, of going to, to Brooklyn. I liked the idea of being near Manhattan. Like you said, you know, growing up near it was an inspiration. It was also, I think, in a lot of ways, you know, I was I was a kid when 9-11 happened, but watching buildings disappear was as inspirational as, as watching them re, uh, reappear um, in a way that made me want to be a part of that. Obviously, it was a huge tragedy, but it was also it seemed as though that a way to heal from that is is to to rebuild. And I think the city, you know, has has 
has proven that in a lot of ways. So I was really dead set on, on going to Pratt, but I remember, you know, you get ex- accepted and then you get the financials. And I remember actually, for some reason, speaking with my English teacher about it at the time who had gone, I think he had gone to an Ivy League school. I don't remember which one. And him explaining to me how elite institutions have a massive amount of resources. And in my mind, it, it didn't make sense that Cornell would be more financially feasible than Pratt, because to me, Pratt was cheaper. The overall total cost of attendance of Pratt was cheaper. However, the cost they could um, fund per student was less. So Cornell was able to offer me an incredible scholarship to go there. And then I also was able to go on something called the Pell Grant, which is um, a grant that the the U.S. federal government gives essentially to under, underprivileged people whose, whose families can't really afford to send them to, to college. And then you you fill out your, your FAFSA, which is like your financial aid application. Um, you put kind of what you can reasonably make or what you have reasonably saved for, and then your parents kind of fill out the same thing. And at the end of the day, when everything kind of shook out, the best school happened to be the one that could also give me the, the best funding. And so it was a purely financial decision. I ended up really liking leaving and being further from home and Ithaca has this sort of monastic quality to it which means you you get to a point where all you can do is study <laughs> because you're in the middle of nowhere and it's cold <laughs> but it was a great place to kind of disconnect and really just get totally into into architecture yeah I love what you say there because you were so honest about saying I went to that university really because it made financial sense yeah yeah Okay, I ask direct questions, as you know. Can you tell me what level of debt you owe in and how do you service that debt? So I have about $140,000 of debt, somewhere between one hundred and forty dollars and one hundred and fifty. We've been on a, a payment pause here in the States, so I haven't had to deal with um, payments for quite a while uh, as, a, you know, as a function of, of COVID. One of the ways that I... And most of that debt is grad school. So like I said, Cornell heavily funded me. Um, I think about, I think now Cornell is edging on $60,000 a year. When I went, it was closer to, it was in the low 50s. So, you know, you're talking about a five-year program at 50 or 60. You're talking about the cost of a very high-end sports car, um, certainly a house. But when I graduated from Cornell, I probably had, I was funded up to 10K a year. So I, or sorry, I was funded with only 10K a year left over, which is what I had to take out in loans. So I left Cornell with about 50, a little bit less of uh, $50,000 in debt. Um, And then grad school, which is, is a hefty, um, hefty commitment. That's a two year, a two, I went to a two year program and I got grants to, to do that as well, but nowhere near enough, enough to cover it. Essentially one of the reasons I ended up getting an MBA which I did for free online, was to understand how financial engineering works and to understand how to pay back my loans. At the time, I was I was dating someone in finance and was trying to figure out how I would actually pay back my student loans when I graduated. I was making, when I graduated from grad school, my first job was making about 50K a year. Um, I had about, you know, 150 in, in loans. And I was like, all right, I live in Manhattan uh, or in order to work where I was going to work, I needed to live in Manhattan. You know, rent costs, whatever it cost at the time, I think I was paying 1700 a month. When I graduated, it was just like, all right, you know, you have this much coming in after taxes. So what do you, how do I do this? And I 
learned about discounted cash flow analysis and I figured out, you know, the value of my loans and the the future uh, was going to be X, Y, Z. I'm on an income-based repayment plan. So the amount of money I have to pay towards my student loans is directly based on the income that I make, you know, on my tax return. And then at the end of 20 years of paying that, which I'm now just about 10 years into, that balance will be forgiven. But the amount that's forgiven is is taxable. Essentially, it gets tacked onto your income. So I knew that in 20 years, I would have a what we kind of call that if you nerd out over this sort of thing, the tax bomb investment. At the time, I think I calculated that the amount I was going to be forgiven was going to add about $75,000 of, of income onto my, my income that year, which means it would bump me into a tax bracket. I would need to pay that amount of money. And the present value of that amount, so 20 years prior, was mm. about $23,000. And while paying back $150,000 seemed impossible, I figured out that 23, while still a ton of money, was suddenly doable. And I just, I did everything I possibly could to save and freelance and earn money on the side to make sure that I had $23,000 as soon as possible. It took about probably 18 months, maybe two years to kind of put that aside and put it in an investment account that will grow to, you know, 20 years from then being enough to cover that tax bomb investment. And then essentially everything I pay towards my student loans is tied to my income. The more I make, the more I pay when we're in repayment. And if I make nothing, I would, I would pay nothing, but um, making nothing terrifies me. (laughs) So... (laughs) I basically got into finances and financial engineering, and I learned that money is a tool, not something to be afraid of. I grew up being afraid of it. Yeah, me too. I love what you said there. And doing an MBA as well because of uh, suffering a large amount of debt, which there was no other option. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, Okay. You live in New York, and this is probably related, you know, and you've mentioned uh, the expense of living in New York. I think we all we're all aware of that. You know, how do you survive uh, in New York? And also you've got the added um, extra cost of health insurance to to, to sort of uh, pay for. Right, because I'm, I'm an entrepreneur, so which means I have to pay my own health insurance. Well, I think, look, in a lot of ways, the work we do at Out of Architecture is to help people get jobs because a lot of people feel much more secure when they're employed. And I think that makes a ton of sense. I am not one of those people. I don't feel like I have control over my life and my job when it's in someone else's hands. So, and again, I think this comes from a lot of, in a lot of ways, the way I was raised in the sense that um, someone I'm really close with in my family is my uncle. And he has this sort of um, approach to life and he's a self, self-made guy and has always kind of worked for himself. He always said, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I'm capable and I'm, I'm smart. And I knew that no matter what, I would always find a way to make money. He's like, what I had a problem with was always being able to work under somebody. So once you let go of this idea that, or if you didn't have it to begin with, which I don't think I do, that a job is your ultimate stability, you just recognize that every month you have a number that you have to hit in order to survive, right? And you find a way to make that happen. And that forces you or forced me as an entrepreneur to really look at like, what is the value I bring to people? And what do I have to charge in order to survive? Not 
what are people paying or what do I feel like is the lowest I can do it for? But hey, what does this actually cost me? And we coach people out of architecture through this a lot because we'll have people who freelance or want to do things on the side. And you realize that, you know, making like maybe as a junior, if you're going with an hour, hourly rate of uh, take an annualized salary and then break it down, maybe it's 35 an hour, 30 an hour. As a freelancer, you can't charge that. You've got to tack on 40% for self-employment uh, taxes, for health insurance, um, overhead, you know, you're paying for your computer. I pay for the lights and electricity and, and internet. And you realize suddenly when you're billed out at 150, even though you're only making 35, suddenly you learn where that figure comes from. And then you have to just be aware, right? I have to be aware that, you know, every month I have to pay my my health insurance. Every month I have to um, cover the cost of, of utilities and whatnot. Usually your employer is paying that, but you're billed out at a higher rate than you you make. And as an entrepreneur, both of those numbers are up to you. And I liked that control. I maybe am a little bit of a control freak. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's 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 leave the money side of things for a, for a while now. And you began working for Todd Williams and Billy. Yep. You know, Todd one Billy. of the design firms in the US, I believe. You know, um, I just want to understand what was it like working for them. And what did you learn from them as mentors? Oh, it's paradise, right? So I begged them to give me a job. They were my professors uh, for my last semester of grad school. Um, and it's interesting so that, you know, way back when I was taking that pre-college class at Pratt, we were each given a building to study in, in New York City to do like a report on and do sketches. And I was assigned the American Folk Art Museum. So the first building I ever sketched was was the Folk Art Museum, which is, it, it no longer exists. It was, it was torn down. And I fell in love with them at that point. And I thought it was actually kind of serendipitous that they bookended my architectural experience. I did that pre-college program. I, I went to their building, I studied it, and then they were going to be teaching my last semester at, at the GSD. So I took it as serendipitous and I said, there's no way I'm going to graduate and not get a job from them. Um, so I think I just annoyed the shit out of them <laughs> um, and begged them uh, to take a chance on me. And they did. Right as I came in, they had just won the Obama library. And I got started basically working on that and on the um, another competition that they were doing that I, I think it's okay to, to say they lost. Uh, we were competing uh, for the Baylor. So I was working on both. And it was absolutely uh, fantastic. If anything, they taught me what an architecture firm should be. Everyone that worked there, this shouldn't be the baseline, but was treated like a, or this should be the baseline, was treated like a human being. If you were there working late, they were too. They acted very much like your parents, which I think is a function of my age and, and theirs at the time. But, you know, I think there's a lot of toxicity around when a place says they're like a family, but there it's actually very true. When we were working there or when I was working there, I got into an accident. I was about two weeks into my time in the city and um, or maybe about a month. And I was hit on my way to work by a cyclist. My head hit the pavement and I got a massive cut across my face and a concussion. And um, they forced me to take a week off. <laughs> I was trying to go back to work sooner. They sent someone from the office to meet me at the hospital uh, to make sure I was okay. And um, they knew that I had was when you graduate, you're given 
because of the way health insurance works in the United States, you're given coverage through the end of the calendar year, not the academic year, which is great. But they knew that I was going to be essentially without insurance pretty soon. I was on a conditional hire to start and they actually rewrote their office policy at the time to make sure that I would be I would be given benefits and then they gave everyone else who was at that level benefits or health health benefits at the time because this had happened and it had never happened and they reevaluated their their policies at the same time I think um sooner soon or shortly later that year uh Trump got elected and some different work workplace policies were brought down by that administration they sat everybody down and said we're being told by the government we don't have to do this anymore we're going to do we're going to keep doing it instead and they i think they were actually pioneering in the city uh things like maternity and paternity leave uh way before the government was you know mandating it both at a state and a federal level they were wonderful human beings who who showed that you can be great architects and great business people and great bosses i have nothing but wonderful things to to say about working there aside from avoid cyclists near their office <laughs> Well, my next my next question is an obvious one. You know, did, why did you leave uh, Todd and Billy's practice? You know, work for the commercial practice studio gang. Yeah. So I two reasons. One, I was a little bored. The work was great and beautiful, but I like to work at a a smaller scale. I didn't know this necessarily about myself at the time, but you figure these things out. And two, they're really honest with everyone that that works for them and they kind of they sat me down one day as they do everybody they they talk to everyone very frequently it's not a big office when i was there i think we were just approaching like 35 maybe 40 and essentially todd and billy brought me into a room and they were like look you know you you're doing great you have a home here but this is not where you will be long term Todd was like, look, we, they knew I was already doing kind of projects on the side and they were okay with it. And they were like, look, this is not something you're going to do. You're not going to work for somebody for very long. So you should just go do that. That's what Todd said. And I'm a, a stubborn and my animal brain comes first. And the first thing I thought was I can't afford to do that. You know, I, I need this job. I need a job. And I remember feeling a little bit resentful because I was just like, if I could do that, I would, but essentially they just they analyzed me and, and who I was. And again, they had known me as a student before being their employee. So I think you get a different lens through that. And they were facing a very real issue at the time of they needed people that were more senior. And they were looking at it, I think, from a legacy perspective as well. I think one of them said, you know, in particular, like, we want people who are going to stay with us for a minimum of 10 years. And we don't even know in 10 years what we're going to be doing. At the time, I think they were in their 70s, right? So I think they were just very candid about the fact that, you know, hey, we need to make a long-term decision. And our general sense here is that you, in 10 years, are not going to be working for anyone else. So you should just go do that. And they they basically said, as you figure that out, you have a home here, but figure out how you want to do that. So I got an offer to teach one day a week and I was like, wow, maybe that could be like an on-ramp to kind of starting my own thing or doing my own thing more full-time. And after that conversation, I sort of felt like maybe I should go try another place and see if if Todd's really right. <laughs> I got an interview to to teach it or sorry, to 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 work at Studio Gang. The team was super supportive also. Um, Paul, the managing partner, you know, was like, hey, if, if you need an intro to, to anybody, if you really want to try something else, we'll totally support you in that. And they did. 
I was also able to leverage a pretty significant pay increase when I went to Studio Gang, which was helpful. And I was able to negotiate one day a week out of the office teaching, which allowed me to kind of scratch that itch. Went into Studio Gang and it was the complete opposite of, of Todd and Billy, um, which I think is very team-based. I was just not on not on a great team and didn't get off to a great start. And it was a, it was a, a train wreck. Um, I think Jeannie, Jeannie is brilliant. Um, the work of the firm is, is awesome, but it was not the place for me. So I'm guessing, guessing the issues were because of the team structure and the people that were in that particular team. Yeah. I mean, also, you know, when you come out of architecture school, either undergrad or grad, you, you definitely need to be there's a whole other education you have to go through in an office. And I was at the, in the New York office. It was very small. They had a lot of work. And, you know, in design, we, we have a tendency to promote people based on their design ability, not on their management skills. And I was green. And I think, you know, they were green. We just consistently kind of butted heads. I never knew if what I was doing was the right thing to be doing. When I struggled with things, there was just no time to understand you know, uh, how it could be done better. I just had to sort of figure, figure it out, which part of me, I think I understand, but it's not the most efficient way to, to work. And it was also just not a great, great working kind of culture office environment. I did end up before leaving studio gang officially, I ended up switching teams and it going 10 times better. Um, so I do think for people who are struggling in an office, sometimes you don't have to necessarily leave. You just have to kind of change, you know, change the team and, uh, studio gang was big enough where that was a, a possibility. So I think, you know, if I hadn't really made the decision to leave at that time, maybe I would have stayed, but I already had gotten then a full-time teaching position. Um, and I had another, another commission. So, you know, the, the practice was on its way and as was a more stable, uh, environment for things like health insurance <laughs> and steady oh, income. I love it. Okay. Okay. My next question is let's talk about Sophia, an architect who worked for 10 years in a big practice and then got her father got cancer and she uh, got fuck all support from her employers who claimed to be a family firm. You know, yeah. lawyer architects often such uh, shitty people. And what I mean by this is, you know, do you believe architects are a certain personality type and are attracted into this industry, often displaying traits of, Lack of empathy. It's a, it's a big one, but it's, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot to unpack. I can empathize with Sophia. One of the reasons I had issues at Studio Gang was because my mom was very sick and I'm a morning, morning person. And everyone at the office was a night owl that liked to work all night. And I wanted to be home in the evening to take care of my mom, but was happy to get there very early. And that was a sticking point for sure. I would be there two hours before a lot of other people, but I wouldn't stay two, three, four hours into the night, which has a tendency to drag on. I mean, so I'll kind of unpack the question a bit. Do I think architecture attracts a certain personality type? Yes, but I don't think that's true of everybody. Um, and I think that's changing. But I mean, if we if we read Atlas Shrugged or Ayn Rand or The Fountainhead or any of that stuff, yeah, there's a reason. The stereotype exists for a reason. I think part of that becomes or comes from the fact that we are passionate about what we do and the work that we do, it can be all consuming and you can lose sight of the things that matter. 
I think that's true of lots of professions or people who are deeply passionate about what they do. I also think culturally, at least in the States, which I'm sure as your listeners can tell, that's where my expertise lies. Culturally, for a very long time, particularly pre-pandemic, one, you did not talk about what was going on at home or what other issues were out there. But two, architecture was was and still very much is a gentleman's profession. You come often from a certain level of or a certain class and typically full of white males who aren't usually or haven't historically been always the central caregiver needed to be you know caregivers or supporting of other other people in ways that were not just financial right so you have a confluence of a lot of these factors where you have super passionate individuals who care very deeply about what they do and can be laser focused on what they do and say yeah fuck all to everything else um and i think there's everyone should have a time in their life where they're able to do that for me that was college i was able to go away really be immersed in what i did and focus on honing my craft and being totally and utterly absorbed. And I remember, I'm very close with my aunts and uncles in my family. I remember one year working on a project, staying up all night and sleeping through the next day, which was my aunt's birthday. And I'm incredibly close with her. She raised me for a good part of my childhood. And I slept through this person's birthday and I felt absolutely awful. And it made me realize work is not everything, even though I was totally into what I was doing and absolutely loving it. I learned early on that picking up the phone and checking in on the people that you care about, whether it's for a good reason, you know, a birthday is an exciting reason, or because we're human beings and relationships matter, you can't let that go. But no one in school talked about that. You know, professors did not enforce calling home and making sure that you kept your relationships intact. My professor told us on our first day to do our laundry and call our parents because they're not going to hear us hear from us for six months. We're going to be too busy. And I think that was celebrated. And to some extent, again, there are times in your life and seasons to be selfish about your work and what you do. But that's seasonable. Seasonal shouldn't be everything, particularly as you get older and you learn that more and more people uh, depend on you, depending on your relationship status. But, you know, my mom passed away a couple of years ago during COVID. And the only reason I was able to kind of get through it is because I run two businesses, both of which with, you know, best friends, and they understand that family matters and, and your emotions matter and your mental and health and all that stuff is important. And I don't understand, and I think it's getting better post COVID, but, um, Unhappy people in your place of work are not sustainable <laughs> from a, a successful business perspective, but architects are inherently not usually successful business people. We're not taught that. Couldn't agree more. I could not agree more. Okay. I really appreciate that honesty there. What are your thoughts on unpaid internships in architecture practice and also unpaid overtime for salaried architects who have no part of the business profits other than the salary? Yeah, I think it's I think it's bullshit. So unpaid internships in particular, absolutely bullshit. Um, salary is a bigger, uh, bigger question to unpack. So I'll stick with the internships for a second. But so you you pay to go to school typically. Right. Um, and that's where you pay to get experience. That's actually one of the things I tell my students in professional practice, actually. And I, I teach studios occasionally. And I will say, look, I'll, I'll usually calculate it out based on the credit hour. 
But if you miss class, you're you're basically lighting anywhere between three and five hundred dollars on fire. Right. Like if you just and if you're sick, it's one thing. But like if you just choose to blow off class, you're spending that money. Now, when you're a college student, typically it's removed. Right. You pay your fees periodically throughout the semester or at the beginning or at the end or whatever. That's the time where you are paying for experience. I think if you are participating in something that is a for profit endeavor and someone is either making money or breaking even or revenue is flowing because of the work that you are doing. There's no reason you shouldn't be compensated for that. Now, there are caveats to that, right? I don't think if you go to build a house with Habitat for Humanity, you should be paid to do that. Are you learning valuable skills? Absolutely. Are you helping something? Absolutely. But you're not producing a product that's being sold or, or contributing to a service that's that's making fees, right? From an internship perspective, if you look at the way we have, and this is not new, right? Nor is this my idea, but you have architects that can churn out beautiful competition proposals um, and not even architects, but boutique architect firms, architecture firms that can do it simply because they have very cheap or unpaid, incredibly skilled labor that is young and able to produce that stuff quickly and not beholden typically to, you know, partners and kids and all that sort of stuff, right? They're either in school or they're just out of school. And they're winning these competitions that are also likely not paying the architect. So we have this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy of work that gets done at a really high level that has a high amount of value that is discounted at every point. The person producing it, their labor is discounted. And then the architect submitting that competition, that labor gets discounted because typically competitions aren't paying for those design submissions, right? And I think we do that because we feel like we need to our craft, our profession is our passion and simply doing the work is payment enough. And I think that that's just bullshit. It just is. The opportunity to work for someone who you think is a genius is great, but you are working for them. Someone is making money somewhere. Now, on the other end of that spectrum, you have your question about salary, but this dovetails into unpaid internships. If your firm, if a firm, if a business owner is not able to compensate people for the work that they're doing. Something is wrong with the business. <laughs> something is wrong with the fee structure. Something is wrong with the the um, the way that math and that contract is structured, right? If I made a car for a living or cars for a living, right? A product that takes engineering, it takes design, it takes assembly, it takes raw materials, right? If I were selling that car for less than it cost me to make it, I'd be out of business. But for some reason in architecture, we have a bunch of people who are willing to take less than they're worth because we have a culture of it being acceptable and, and sought after, right? You know, at Cornell, I was told you should be going to work for a star architect during the summer. And I couldn't afford it. <laughs> I went to work for, I did an internship at FX Fowl, which is now FX Collaborative, because they paid, at the time, $15 an hour, which was insane. Insanely good, right? Like, And I couldn't go work for, you know, in the Meyer model shop um, for nothing for a summer to prove that I would earn the ability to make, you know, probably a somewhat competitive salary once you actually got a full-time position with Meyer uh, at some point. Now I obviously would never go work there. But the reality is, is like, that means if you can't if you can't pay your people for the work that you're doing, then something is wrong internally. 
Now, when it comes to the salaries, that to me, I think is an, is an interesting factor, right? If you think about other professional services firm, let's take lawyers, right? Their performance is, is tied, or sorry, often their compensation is tied to their billables. They could also be salaried employees. And if they increase their billables, they're not necessarily increasing their salaries. But if you look at the base salary of a lawyer compared to the base salary of an architect and the typical fees that lawyers charge versus what architects charge, there's your disconnect. So do I think that all overtime needs to be paid? No. I think you need to compensate your people for their value because the better a person you have, the less time they're typically spending on certain tasks, which means their time is more valuable. And if you're keeping them at a depressed salary to a point where you're asking them to work 10, 15, 20, 30 hours more a week than they typically would, then they need a 30% pay increase on their salary. Salary is based on 20, 30, 2,030 hours a year, right? That's 40 hour, or 40 hours a week for 50 weeks out of the year. If you're constantly working 80, your salary sounds like it should be double. But we don't have people who negotiate from that position in architecture because historically we they haven't done that. Now, that said, that's how I frame it to my my architecture students in professional practice. I say if you take a salary at let's say $65,000 a year, you annualize that and you break out hourly what that cost is, you're making I think I'm going to do quick math. You're making somewhere around 40 30 between 35 and 40 an hour. Right now, that's if you're working 40 hours a week. Now, let's say that pretty much when you first start, you're really working 60. Your pay just went down by 20% an hour. If you're working 80, cut it in half hourly. Right. So, if you really want to think about it that way, which I think people should, that's how you evaluate salaries, not just on what's your your compensation or your comparables around you, because it sounds like or it seems like no one else seems to know how to negotiate entry level and beyond. Like most of the people who come to us and out of architecture kind of mid-career and they've realized like their non-architect friends all of a sudden are still making kind of, you know, progressive increases. And there's, there seems to be a terminal cap or a terminal velocity in in architecture. And I, I think that means we need to look at how these businesses are being run. Why can't we pay our people what they're valued? And them incremental pay rises that, you know, you've suggested there, uh, you've also got to factor in the inflation as well, because you've got Absolutely. to be before it's actually a pay rise. I get quite annoyed when people say, I've just had a 5% pay rise and inflation's at 8%. Yeah. You're, you've got a pay cut, basically. Yeah. Um, less of a pay cut than you would have gotten if you... Yeah, I remember speaking with a friend of mine. We were about five years out of college, undergrad at the time. And they hadn't gotten a pay increase in, in all of those five years. And I was like, well, why not? And I was like, well, they haven't offered it. And I'm like, you need to, you need to ask then. You're doing great. You've gotten a promotion, right? Like, you know, he had been promoted at that point to a, a project manager. I'm like, this is all the money you've just simply from through inflation you've left on the table. Now, at the time we were, you know, dealing with only 2% year over year, but it's, that's still after five years, pretty significant. That's unfortunate. Okay, I've got another big question for you before we get on to um, your uh, business. So what are your thoughts on architects and students worshipping them like gods and working for low salaries and long hours? I know we've touched on this, when they may not be good people to work for because they can more than often create toxic cultures, long working hours, and we've, we've seen some of the stuff come out this year. This sort of concept of suffering for one's art is something I personally 
uh, we need to test. You know, what what are your thoughts on um, Starkitects and that worshiping? I mean, I, I I totally I totally I'm with you there on the the uh, the detesting of them, right? I think I think it's an unfortunate circumstance we found ourselves in in the sense that architecture is a mentorship based profession. We we grew out of, you know, artisans guilds, right? So this idea of of mentorship and really looking up to the people who came before you because we value their wisdom and their expertise and we have something to learn, I think is really important, right? And and I'm a little bit of a romantic and it might be overly romanticized, but there's a part of me that is drawn to architecture simply because of that. But that also means now that I'm more of the mentor than the mentee, that I take that really seriously. You know, when I've had people, when I've taught studios or, or whatnot, come to me and say, I want to work for you and I'll work for you for free. And I'm just like, no, you won't. And please don't offer that to anyone else. If I can hire you, I will. Right. But I will be completely honest with you. If I can't hire you, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you I can. And number two, please don't take that personally. It's a business decision. It's not a, because I don't like you. Right. Um, but I won't accept free labor. Now that said, I'm not a star architect by any means, nor do I want to be one. And I don't think all of the star architects out there are shit mentors or shit bosses. Mm. I think many of them are, but that's a function of because they can, right? Why would you, and this is to some extent a shrewd business decision, but why would you take someone for 20% more if you could get them for 20% less, right? That's a, an unfortunate fact of capitalism, but... That's a really shitty way to mentor somebody and a really shitty way to keep them in your employee if you want to really make an investment in them. An employee, an intern, whatever, is an investment in your company. You invest in them, and if they like you and want to stay with you and they feel like they're learning and growing, they will be more and more value to you. That's why your value in a company should go up, right? Your salary should go up, even beyond inflation. I don't understand why people who are incredibly good at design, star architects, right? They've been lauded for their design abilities, can't see that. Part of it may be egotistical, for sure. But I think part of it is also this, at their level, flagrant disregard for what it takes to run a business. Um, part of that is cultural. I don't, so I don't know why we don't teach more of it in school, but it's also become this idea of, I don't have to worry about money because I've reached this level of society. And I think that that's ridiculous. I, I don't recommend any of my students take unpaid internship. I don't re recommend anyone take an internship where they're paying more to work than they're actually being paid. There's a lot of, particularly in the U S if they, if students want to go work abroad, hmm. often they don't pay you a salary. They pay you a stipend, right? And that stipend is supposed to go to housing or, or something. But oftentimes, and this was true when I worked with a firm in Slovenia, on a, we collaborated on a project. They were also my professors in grad school. They didn't pay their interns. And I remember speaking to them and asking why. What they said basically was, well, our interns come to us through the different schools in this network. They get college credit and we pay a stipend and cover their housing. That to me is different, right? One, you're earning college credit. Two, your cost of, of actually doing the work is being met and you're getting this great experience. And yeah, the firm is not going all out and paying you a salary, but there's a cultural and institutional exchange that's happening. Now, 
for the students who were coming from America or not from the EU to, to go work for that firm, they didn't have a system in place to then pay them more. So when I tell my students who are going to look at internships in Copenhagen or, you know, Amsterdam or, and I say like, look, you, you realize you have to compete with people who don't need to make a salary because the, the institutions there are different. I would really question whether or not you need to do this. Now I teach at Cornell. There's a lot of students who go to that institution that come from means, right? And their family would have no problem subsidizing that experience. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. That said, independent wealth should not have to subsidize our profession. It should derive its own value from the work that's being done. And that means we pay people at every level, right? So there's a difference, I think, and there's a gray area when it comes to, you know, study abroad experiences and whatnot. But at, you know, we I had plenty of colleagues who were able to come to the city after graduating and take a $25,000 a year salary because they came from money and they could afford their parents to to help them and in, in stay in New York and live in New York and afford this life. And I get that. And it's great that their parents have gotten to a point where they're able to do that. But that means that that firm is being able to is able to subsidize their fees by not having to pay people what they're valued, which means architecture as a whole gets undervalued. And that's more common than not, even though it sounds anecdotal. Why do you believe architects undervalue themselves by accepting such low salaries is it because that's their their kind of only option I said I'll frame that by one of the you come out of university it's very difficult to set up a practice you know just go straight into practice so your only option really is to go into a practice but the salaries are often so low you wouldn't see a lawyer doing that no and there's a culture though in law school where people talk about what they're going to make when they graduate you don't have that in architecture school, you know, so I, I fall under, I, I'm not a member uh, on purpose, but I fall under here in the US, the AIA, right? And for the longest time, the AIA's code of ethics said you needed to leave a meeting if anyone was discussing fees, right? You can't even stay there, let alone participate in the discussion, because for some reason, the AIA confuses the definition of discussion with the definition of collusion, um, which again, and I'm I'm sorry for your your listeners who are less familiar with kind of uh, the Federal Trade Commission here and the idea of price fixing, but I'm sure you have your own version of it there. And essentially, we just don't have a culture from university onward of talking about money. And I think that comes from a couple of reasons. One, you know, it, it can be considered crass to openly discuss money, particularly not in a business setting. In a personal setting, it becomes even more so. But in a business setting, you know, there are people who are averse to it. And two, again, architecture is born out of a, a, a gentrified profession and a gentrified, gentrified class, right? You didn't have yeah. to talk about money then, right? You could do your world tour, you were sponsored by the Pope, and it didn't matter what it cost. But now you have the opposite of college has gotten a lot more accessible. I am an example of that. But I went into college having no idea what I should have to make in order to live in Manhattan as a member of a white collar profession. I had no idea. I had no idea because no one in my family had ever had a job like that or could ever tell me what something like that would be. You know, my grandmother worked in a factory making dresses for Dior, but she was a laborer. 
she was considered a laborer at the time. She made beautiful stuff, right? But my father was had his own cabinet making business. Uh, you know, everyone was essentially a different type of laborer that frankly, at this point, kind of doesn't exist anymore. If we think about how how our society has moved past a sort of more industrial age and into and not that there aren't industrial jobs there are but I had no idea what the barometer would be and I was incredibly uncomfortable talking about money I remember hearing my freshman year a couple of fifth years talking about not liking their salary prospects and granted I went to school uh in 2009 right my freshman year was 2009 so we're still reeling. They were graduating at the time into a financial crisis. So salaries were really low. And I remember one of them saying like, I mean, you know, if I graduate and I only make 50 K, I remember sitting there and being like, holy crap, I could make $50,000. Like that to me was bonkers. Right. So I think you also have a lot of people now who are going to school. And if there's not a culture around of, openly talking about money and what your value is, you don't know how to value yourself. And that is just incredibly, I, I don't want to use the term unfair because life is unfair, but it is duplicitous <laughs> at worst in the sense that you are radically underpreparing people in order to be valuable professionals. Because if you have a, an entire profession that doesn't know how to value themselves at every level, then mm. we're doomed and we don't deserve to deserve to exist as a profession. If we can't run viable businesses, those businesses don't deserve to exist. At least in the structure we have. Love it. Love it. Absolutely. And you teach professional practice. So I'm interested, how has the demographic changed in the US? You don't have many black architects. You know, what do you see as mm -hmm. the main barriers for this? Cost, number one, it's incredibly expensive to go to school. Return on investment. I think more and more students and more and more parents are are really interested in, in return on investment. If you're going to spend this much on college, and I, I think that's great. You know, my my family wasn't kind of prepared to have that conversation with me, and I don't I don't blame them for it. Um, but that is an important, an important question. Um getting licensed in the States is incredibly expensive and incredibly difficult. You need kind of a trifecta of things to happen. One, you need a job that will allow you to move between the different experience areas because your your internship or your experience period, you have to hit certain categories of practice. Um, but as an employee, their or the firm's job is not only to prioritize your professional development, but to utilize you and your skills. And sometimes you're stuck on one project that's stuck in DD or stuck on CDs for a long time. Um, so you need a, a, a company that's willing to work with you on that. You need a company or the ability to financially pay for all the uh, materials, study materials, I mean, um, as well as the tests. At minimum, it's going to cost you 1500 bucks if you pass every single one on the first try. And my partner at Matter did that. I didn't. Right. Like he he took he's an incredible test taker. He's incredibly smart. He took one test right after the other month apart, studied, banged him right out. I I failed one of them three times. I'm a shit test taker. And at the time I was working for myself, running a business and 
my mom was incredibly sick and that was my priority, right? So feeding yourself and, and whatnot take take precedent. So you need a financial uh, assistance and, and help and, and, and the ability to, to fund that endeavor. And you need time. You don't know what you don't know. And those exams do not test your design abilities. They test your ability to make a safe, functioning, well-constructed building and how you can do that on the project side, the practice side, the client side, the legal side. It's a lot of material to learn. You need the time to learn it and you need the time to study and you need to time the time to go take the tests. And if the firm or the place you're working or life doesn't give you the opportunity to go do that, that makes it harder. So if you are contributing to a household back home or contributing to raising of your siblings or the raising of a kid or helping your your partner get through some sort of other professional endeavor, it makes it that much harder, which is why we have a very male-dominant profession here in the States and we have a very you know, monolithic from a color perspective, it's changing and NCARB and NAB and the AIA like to talk about how much it's changing, but not at a great pace. You know, I'm, so I'm, my background is, is Italian, Irish, Puerto Rican, and Cuban, right? The number of practicing Hispanic architects is incredibly low, right? Um, the number of, of females, particularly you know, 20 years into their career is incredibly low. And you look at the stats at every stage of licensure. So graduating, starting your experience, starting your exams, and they go down at every step. They get more white and more male at every step. And you can kind of figure out why, right? You either need to leave the job because you're not making enough money. You need to um, put a pause on testing because you are either taking care of people at home or you, you're maybe starting a family or whatever. Mm. And it takes it takes its toll and the the data bears out that um it's incredibly difficult and incredibly expensive when you teach do you tell the future architects the truth that the cost of studying may never be rewarded by pay let's say if you compare it to doctors i do but i i try to have a positive bend on it which is that it doesn't have to be that way but no i i have one lecture where we actually um I compare the profit margins, at least in the U.S., the AIA puts out a, uh, a like a firm survey, um, and they say that if you are operating at a 10% profit margin, you are healthily profitable or something like that. And I'm like, and then I break down, like, here are the profit margins of, of big companies that you know, which is an unfair comparison, right? Because, you know, I'll, I'll bring up the profit margins of Nike. They're not a service-based industry, but I just try to give them, hey, these are brands that you're aware of. But then I break it down by... Um, service-based profession. So I, I mainly look at um, doctors or the medical profession, lawyers, um, accountants, and or financial services in that sense, or um, consultants. So management consulting, right? Those are kind of the four categories I, I throw at them. Um, the lowest of that end, and these all have ranges, but the lowest on that end is the health, the medical profession. Um, and you can kind of understand why. One, while doctors do take a business class, in medical school for when they're running their own practice, it's only one, right? So you have some very successful medical private practices out there, and then you have some not so successful private practices out there. Um, similarly, also because you have a lot of nonprofit medical endeavors, right? Which by their definition, right? So those numbers tend to get somewhat silly. Lawyers, management consultants, 
easily 30, 40, 50% profit margins. McKinsey will tell you what their profit margin is and it hovers around 45%, right? So, um, and then accountants tend to be very like, they're accountants, right? So they're stable, they understand where they exist, right? So, um, so yeah, we talk about all that. And basically what I try to tell them is that, look, I'm not teaching them for the, the people they are right now. Yes, I'm giving them some advice, but I, I lead that class for the people they're going to be in 5, 10, and 15 years, for the managers they're going to be, for the business owners they're going to be, for the the partners they're going to be to their you know personal endeavors in the sense that like, hey, you want to prioritize that because just from my personal experience, I, I was very young when I lost a parent because they got sick. And now, you know, I have friends who are starting to go through that, but I went through it earlier and shit happens. And you want to be able to be in a, a position, or I wanted to be able to be in a position where I could be present and successful in the work that I do, but also, you know, care about the rest of, of my life and have happy relationships. And I have a nephew I'm incredibly close with. I want to be able to kind of show up at his Boy Scout troop and talk about what it's like to be an architect when I'm invited. Um, but I can't do that if I have a boss that doesn't see the value in, in that sort of work, right? It's another reason why I work for myself. But no, I, I try to be incredibly candid with the students in the same way that I am right now. I have I only have one sort of character that I play, right? So um, I'm honest, uh, but I'm optimistic. I try not to make it so um, doom and gloom the entire time, but I don't sugarcoat it. No, wonderful. I appreciate that honesty as you've done with all of the questions. And I probably know the answer to this, but why did you start out of architecture with Jake, who I, you know, you met at Harvard? Is that right? No, we met, we met first semester, first year of undergrad. Oh. We've been friends for a long time. <laughs> we were roommates through most of undergrad and then and then grad school um uh to some extent it was a way to remain friends so he's on the west coast i'm on the east coast um and it was a way to kind of keep in touch we always complained and we always wanted to make things better i think we would we would kind of bitch and moan about things that we didn't think were were right but we would try to do something about it and um really it it came out of you know people saw what he was doing at Adidas and we're reaching out and wondering like, how as an architect do you work for a shoe company? And then I was getting a lot of inbound both um, because I taught at or taught professional practice. And also, you know, I, my, my actual practice is a design build firm and I was always making things and people wanted to understand how I was able to do that so early on and wanted to know like essentially how we went about having non-traditional careers. And we would talk about it between the two of us and also Jake's wife, who's, who's another incredible friend of mine, we would kind of brainstorm like, hey, I'm interested in doing this. And at one point I was advising a design startup and I was weighing that between doing that and taking another architecture job. And Jake gave me the advice of like, well, you, you kind of did the architecture thing. Why don't you try advising the design firm like that, or the design startup? Like that sounds interesting. And I was like, you know, I had a great, we had a great little community that could support each other and not be ostracizing like what do you mean you don't want to be an architect anymore you know that sort of crap we realized that there was a lot of value in that support and that people out there were really they needed it and we started in 2018 and it was kind of slow and then the pandemic happened and all of a sudden everyone wanted to talk to us which was great and now we're like a team of 10 soon to be 11 so <laughs> that part's been a little bonkers but in a good way no that's wonderful and what are your thoughts on architects about them being generalists you know, instead 
um, should there be specialists? I mean, I think there's room there's room for specialty for those who are really incredibly good at it, right? In the same way that if that's your niche and that's what makes you really excited about what gets you out of bed every day, then I think go for it. But for the most part, I think architects' superhuman skills are that of being an expert generalist, right? Um, it's become more popular now that the full quote for full quotation for um, jack of all trades, master of none is jack of all trades, master of none, but often better than a master of one. Right. So like you have this ability to have a deep or a, a very broad understanding of, of things and a lot of knowledge areas and then some deep core expertise, but the ability to manage people who are and specialties and consultants who are deeply embedded in one pillar of, of expertise and understand how that fits with all the other ones, that is a super human skill. And it's it's actually in a lot of ways much more appropriate in many other industries than just architecture. And those skills and the way we're taught are incredibly valuable and honed very well. We're pretty nimble. I, I like to say that a lot of architects are incredibly and inherently good entrepreneurs if they can just divorce it from the idea of having to make money and having to technically be a salesperson because you know how to solve a lot of problems being thrown at you. Um, hopefully you've gotten pretty good at, at time management and you have to be good at relationships, right? And managing customer and client and, and, and team members, right? So I think, frankly, we get training to do a lot of amazing things. I think the, the sad thing is if we tell all of these people who have trained to do that, that they're only good at doing one thing when they really are good at doing so many. If that one thing chooses to be the thing they specialize in, I think that's totally great, you know, but I don't think it's fair to tell everyone that that's what they need to fit into. It does us a disservice. We have too many architects and too few architecture jobs too. So it's a supply and demand issue. So. Yeah. You should see uh, Italy as well. The proportion of architects. Um, yeah. It's <laughs> number of jobs for architects. Please tell me how you can help architects who want to transition out of architecture into careers, obviously without giving away all of, all of your secrets. Um, I mean, the best thing is is you should come and reach out to us at Out of Architecture. So outofarchitecture.com. Um, you can follow us on, on Instagram. We have a, a new Patreon now where, frankly, um, we have a ton of resources. Some of them are free. Some of them are available at different pay tiers. We have a Slack community of a bunch of people who are willing to support you, even if your friends or your family or still don't get it. That's what we're here for. But the main thing I would say too, is, is if you, if you don't want to do any of that, read the book. And if anything resonates there, maybe revisit whether or not you want to have a, have a chat with us. Um, we exist because we want the world to be a better place full of people who are doing what they love to do. And we support people in finding what that is. And we do that for people that come from the same way that we were educated because we feel like architects, I don't think architecture is going to save the world, but I think architects can come have a chat with us, join the community, listen to tangents. You know, I think anyone who's listening to this podcast inherently knows that a lot needs to be fixed. And we're not people who want to listen to problems and not do anything about them. We're problem solvers. You know, in, in a lot of ways, what you're doing is problem solving. It's looking at a problem and saying, how the fuck is this going to be sustainable? Because it's not, right? So I would say listening to your podcast is a, is a great uh, a great way to try to tackle this and then just get involved. And we offer a community that that tries to tries to do that. Wonderful. My last question to you is, what are your hopes for the future of the profession? Big question, I know. Um, 
at a practical level, my hope would be that we let up on the title a bit. I think there are a lot of people out there who deserve to be called architects, even if they don't go through the exact kind of testing that we have to do in the States. Um, frankly, because one of my favorite architects was not an architect, Carlos Garpa, right? Um, I think we need to recognize what that this title has transformed and transcended. In the big picture, I I wish that architects could run better businesses and that people really understood the value that we bring to society and that we don't lose that. Because I think our, our most pressing issue as a profession is losing agency in the built environment. And I don't want to live in a world that's just designed by developers or buildings that are just designed by builders. I think there is a place for us as designers, as arbiters of the built environment, but we're losing that ground every day. And I wish we could work better with all the other constituents around the table and advocate for people who maybe don't have a seat at that table. Wonderful. Erin, this podcast has got so much value. I hope your <laughs> students take a listen to this episode. Just want to thank you for being on the second series of the Brock Architect podcast. Thank you. I really appreciate the conversation and thank you for everything that you're doing. And I'm glad we could uh, have a have a cross, cross the pond collaboration here. So thanks so much. Please share, subscribe and comment to support the channel. architect